Hello everyone, I'm Nicholas Babaya, and you're listening to How to Build the Roads, the official Rational Standard podcast. On today's show, we have a very interesting guest who has come to talk about the issue of Israel. Now, I'm sure I don't need to tell people listening to this that in terms of foreign policy, history, international relations, war, religion, U.S. involvement in the Middle East, you know, left-wing politics, right-wing politics, the issue of Israel is something which seems to completely polarize and completely divide people from all political strata and all stripes of the political spectrum. Uh, On our podcast today, we have a representative from the South African Union of Jewish Students, Tina Katzen. There's a specific reason why we are recording and releasing this podcast right now, and that reason is because Uh, As this will be uploaded, we will be in the midst of what is called Israeli Apartheid Week. So I invited Dina onto the show, and uh, I'd like to hear her just speak about the issue of calling Israel an apartheid state. Does that term hold any water? Uh, I'm someone who is relatively uninformed about this topic. I have exerted a lot of effort to try and get informed, but sadly, this is one of these things where it's uh, an either-or. You either hear the extreme pro-Israel side or the extreme anti-Israel side, Uh, and I thought that seeing as my own university has got no uh, South African Union of Jewish Students organization at it, and and basically no Zionist or no pro-Israel branch, I thought I'd bring in someone to uh, give a different side of the argument as I hear the Palestinian side day in, day out, every year. So enjoy this uh, episode listening to my interview with Dina Katzen. In addition to this, I'd like to remind everyone to give Rational Standard a like on Facebook. If you're on Twitter, you can follow us at Rational Stand. And uh, also please feel free to follow me, Nicholas Babaya, at Nick Babaya, N-I-C-K-B-A-B-A-Y-A. Thanks very much and enjoy the show. And we're here with Dina Katzen coming to discuss uh, Is Israel an Apartheid State? Dina is a member of uh, SORGIS, the South African Union of Jewish Students, and a student at Wits University. Is that correct? That's correct. Thank you for having me. No problem, Dina. Thanks for coming on the show. So let's just jump straight into it here. Is Israel an Apartheid State? So the basic answer to this very complicated question is no, it's not. You know, it's very different when you discuss in other countries in the world about apartheid. But when you bring the apartheid narrative to South Africa, a country that has actually experienced apartheid, you have to be very, very careful with how you bring in this narrative. And in my opinion, this narrative has become ridiculous and in fact exploitive within the South African context. Because people in South Africa, black people and colored people in South Africa, went through apartheid. They understand what apartheid is, what that entailed, the suffering that people's parents and grandparents went through. And this is just simply not the case in Israel. So basically, apartheid was just a baseless hatred of black and colored people, and because of that, a system of segregation. This is just not the case in Israel. I mean, in Israel, currently, the population consists 24% of non-Jewish people. There's about 1.8 million Arabs living with free and equal rights, which was simply not the case when it came to South Africa during apartheid. Black people and colored people had to go to separate facilities, couldn't drive on the same roads, couldn't go to the same schools, the same bathrooms, the same beaches. And that's just not what happens in Israel at the moment. Everybody has the same rights. And 
to call Israel an apartheid state to me just undermines the struggle that people went through in fighting for freedom during apartheid. Yeah, well, it's interesting to hear you say all of these things because I've heard them reiterated by a certain South Africans who tend to be more on the uh, tend to be more supportive of is who tend to be more supportive of Israel rather should I say? Uh, I know that Kenneth Mashwe, the member of Parliament for the African Christian Democratic Party, in his Prague University video, spoke about similar sentiments to what you've just said. But it does seem like a bit of an odd analogy to make and yet this has been a very mainstream analogy on the side of politicians around the world who have more backed the uh, Palestinian side of this conflict that we've been seeing uh, going on for decades and decades and historically much further back then. Now you mentioned a bunch of things which separate apartheid from uh, the modern day state of Israel and on that I'd like to bring up a couple of points which I have tended to see among people pushing this Israeli apartheid narrative. Now, it's important to know that uh, when this podcast will be released, we will be in Israeli Apartheid Week, something which will uh, have multiple events on various South African university campuses. I'm not sure elsewhere, but uh, the point of this recording is I was hoping that we could hear a bit of a counter-narrative to what we're hearing on many of these campuses. I know certainly for one on my campus, there is no Israeli advocacy group uh, and, and so I'm very interested to hear your thoughts. So let's start off. You mentioned um, the rights of people. Now, obviously, under South African apartheid, there were clear distinctions in the sort of rights which people of different races had. If you were not white, you could not vote. Uh, and a whole myriad of other things uh, were taken away from you. And uh, there were a whole number of rights which you did not have, which people who were white had. Now, the analogy that I tend to see being drawn here is that between uh, Palestinians and Israelis. Currently, the political situation is, is obviously very difficult to describe. Um, but what I hear being stated over and over again is that the rights of Palestinians in Israel are diminished to that extent that they make this analogy between apartheid in South Africa and the situation in Israel. So... If I may ask the question, what sort of rights do Palestinians uh, have in Israel? And do you think that there is any analogy there whatsoever? Um, so in terms of what rights, every Israeli citizen has pretty much the same rights. And I'm sure we'll go into some more things in terms of the freedom of movement and yes. that which discussed. But every person who is an Israeli citizen, regardless of your race, regardless of your ethnicity, regardless of your religion can vote, for example, which was something that was unheard of in South Africa um, during apartheid. Every Israeli citizen can run for parliament, serve in parliament, regardless whether you're Arab, Jewish, black, white, it's irrelevant. You have the same unequal rights. Um, in fact, to the extent that in Israel there are three national languages, one of them is Arabic, the other two are English and Hebrew, um, all citizens can attend the same schools, use the same facilities. So I don't think that this apartheid narrative is at all appropriate to apply to Israel. And I think that what you're saying, it is a narrative that has been repeated over and over, which is why I call the narrative exploitive. Because I think apartheid, especially in South Africa, is an extremely emotive concept. It's something that brings up a lot of emotions for a lot of people. And because of that, without finding out for themselves the facts, 
people will automatically assume that the situation in Israel is exactly the same as the situation in South Africa, where it's really not. So that's why I think this narrative is unfair to apply to Israel, because all citizens are equal and have equal rights and are not treated differently in the law, which is not something that happens during apartheid South Africa. Well, I agree uh, for sure that it's important that we don't ring the alarm, so to speak, and and call something, uh, you know... You know, the, the term, like you said, apartheid, was something for which South Africans, it's in our very recent memory for the case of people in your and my generation, uh, most of our parents' lives was under apartheid, and we learn about this in history, and so we know the absolute horrors of it. So we mustn't now misuse this word, of course. Um, anyway, uh, I wanted to ask one thing before I wanted to ask about the question of freedom of movement. Now, I'm by no means an expert on this topic. This is, of course, why I have you here to explain could you explain to me, uh, politically, what is the situation with the Palestinian Authority and the Israeli government with regards to the West Bank? And that may be a difficult question, but could you explain for myself and people who are listening to this what exactly the status quo is? Yeah, so the status quo at the moment is a little bit complicated because it goes back very far into history and the history of how Israel came to be established. But basically, this quote at the moment, although it is a very difficult topic because it dives a little bit into the more technical history of how Israel came to be, um, but basically the situation at the moment is that um, the territory that is the West Bank was captured by Israel in a defensive war in 1967 after it was attacked by Jordan. Was that the Six-Day War? The 1967 Six-Day War, yes. Okay, okay, got it. So under customary law, Israel was obligated to administer this area until peace is achieved, including as per UN Resolution 242, which is the resolution after the 1967 Six-Day War, which assumed that Israel would administer the territories until the Arab countries were willing to negotiate new, more secure borders. But unfortunately, a lot of these offers have been rejected. Um, And in the meantime, terrorists in the area continue to threaten Israeli civilians. So there is still an Israeli presence in the West Bank, although it's not governed by Israel. Okay, that's quite interesting. So uh, am I correct in saying that, for example, so I understand the ruling uh, governmental authority, uh, the the ruling party in Palestine is Hamas, well, the West Bank at least. Is that, that's right, isn't it? Gaza, in Gaza. In Gaza is Hamas. Who who rules in the West Bank? Um, I think it's the Palestinian Authority. Okay. Apologies. I'm very much a layman on this topic, so I hate to ask these silly questions. No, we're all still learning together. Okay, wonderful. Uh, now, like you've said, the Israeli government maintains a presence there, and this has yes. brought up some people to ask, uh, why don't Palestinians have sort of freedom of mo- movement and uh, voting rights or so- things like this? Now... Now, look, to me, it, it almost makes, you know, if, if, if the West Bank is a se- essentially a separate political entity to the state of Israel, these seem like almost obsolete questions. Um, I don't know what you, what you would respond if somebody said to you, well, why can't Palestinians have the same rights as Israelis if uh, the Israeli government still maintains a presence in, in the West Bank? And perhaps I should also ask you, do you think that the Israeli government is justified in doing so? Uh, if you had a choice, would you like to see them move out? Um, so basically, I, I see what you're saying, and it's, it's exactly that. 
um, the Palestinians that are living in the West Bank are not actually citizens of Israel. Um, it's not a part of Israel. It's a kind of separate entity. So they don't have voting rights in Israel the same way as citizens of another country don't have the right to vote in a country in which they're not citizens in. So in that, I, I kind of think also that's a bit of a null argument. But I think that the the issue that comes up more in terms of the Palestinians in the West Bank is this freedom of movement, because I'm not going to sit here and make up lies. There are checkpoints um, that Palestinian people have to go through in order to get into Israel. And to be completely honest with you, these it's not a comfortable thing. It's not comfortable, it's not fun, and it does make the lives of a lot of Palestinian people a little bit difficult, to say the least. However, this these checkpoints are unfortunately, and hopefully this won't be the situation one day, but unfortunately at the moment, these checkpoints are a necessity in order to protect the citizens of Israel because terror terror is a real thing and the situation in Israel and its surrounding countries is extremely volatile and unfortunately there have been attempts to bring in weapons and suicide bombs into Israel so for the moment these checkpoints are a necessary evil is what I'd call it um, however Israel is committed it does understand that this is is a burden on the lives of Palestinian people that are trying to get into Israel and in places where it has shown to be safe and terror has shown to have come down substantially, the checkpoints are removed. In fact, there's very few remaining. Um, however, it does exist and it's not the ideal situation for anyone. Unfortunately, at the moment, it's a necessity. And I know this is something that a lot of people compare to apartheid, um, where black people and colored people have to carry passes. However, the main difference is that during apartheid, there was no reason for this. Black and colored people were not a threat. They were just, it was based on a baseless hatred, based on skin color and race, which should never be a reason how you could judge someone. However, in Israel, the basis for these checkpoints and permits is a security issue, and it's a very real security issue. Well, absolutely, and this is what I've heard uh, other people with similar views to yours have justified the, the wall and the checkpoints and stuff like that because of the number of terrorist threats that Israel gets. I wanted to ask you, do you know if these uh, terrorist threats are simply ideological or, uh, well, in, in from uh, ideological sects or groups with, uh, in the Palestinian territories, or do you know if they're actually state-funded at all? Is there any any state funding of terrorism going on? Well, the, you have to remember that um, in terms of what's considered the occupied territories, Gaza and the West Bank, Gaza is governed by Hamas, which is an internationally recognized terrorist organization. So, to me, kind of ideological terrorism and state-funded is almost a very thin line in between it because it's a terrorist organization that's running... Gaza, essentially. So I think a lot of these attempts come from Hamas in Gaza rather than on a like basic civilian level. Because to be quite honest with you, a lot of the oppression that's taking place of Palestinian people in Gaza and the West Bank is done by the leaders themselves. Um, Hamas in Gaza uses children as human shields, sends people in with suicide bombs into Israel. I think that's kind of the situation at the moment. 
Yeah, I mean, and that's crazy. You know, when you have a government with this sort of ideology, this sort of extremism that it would state-sponsor terrorism governing a group of people, I mean, that is, you know, it's quite outrageous to really consider. And we'll get to this, I suppose, later on uh, in the podcast. But this, I know, is one of the reasons why I've heard certain, uh, well, one American political commentator in particular saying he thought the Oslo Accords were stupid because he didn't want to give a state to terrorists. But we, yeah. we, we'll talk about that a little bit later. Um, but anyway, I think you've you've made a good case here. It does seem like these things which people are describing as being analogous to apartheid, it's really quite an absurd analogy if you ask me. I, I think apartheid was this vile crime against humanity and we should not use the word unless it truly is reflected in another country. Um, so, you know, moving slightly off this topic, the one thing I continually, I continuously hear from Israelis is that they want peace. It's their ultimate goal, and I, I fully believe that. You know, this is a country which has basically been in a state of war ever since its founding. I'm talking about the modern state of Israel, at least. Um, again, this is a very complicated question, but, uh, you know, as recent as 2014, we had a, a major conflict happening in Gaza with Operation Protective Edge. Um, there are still terrorist threats going on all the time. If I were to ask you a question, who or what is preventing peace in Israel today, in the year 2018, how would you answer that question? I understand that is a very big and difficult question, but uh, would you be able to give some insight on that? Sure, well, exactly what you said. It's not one specific issue, and to be quite frank with you, it's not one specific side. Neither of these sides are perfect. However... It is difficult, almost impossible, to negotiate with terrorists, especially terrorists that are unwilling to come to the negotiation table. Um, the Palestinian leadership at the moment is unwilling to come to the table and talk peace. And with, you know, in order to have peace, that has to be a mutual agreement. And when you have only one side that's willing to even come to negotiations, that's a little bit of a difficult thing to achieve. They have in the past... 70 years, been countless peace offers from the Israeli government that have just been rejected with no counter-offer or no reasonable counter-offer. Um, for example, in 2005, a lot of, around that time, a lot of people were saying that the Israeli presence in Gaza was the, the obstacle to peace. And so the prime minister at the time decided to pull out of all the settlements and just pull out of Gaza completely. And clearly today, there's still no peace. Um, I compared a lot to South Africa, again, at the end of a, you know, the apartheid narrative, as we know, is something that's coming up soon, so I'll just compare it to something that happened. But when we had the Codesa conference, um, at, right when apartheid was ending, every single party had to sit down and be involved in those negotiations so you can come up with a compromise and move forward towards a peaceful situation, which is what happened. Unfortunately, there have been offers in as recent as 2008 to give up a lot of land for peace. There have been land for peace exchanges in the past and no progress has been made for this. So I think ultimately the basis of the lack of peace at the moment is just the Palestinian leadership's unwillingness to negotiate at all. Do you mind if I ask uh, on the topic of peace, and again, I asked this question finding it a little bit absurd, but this is something else which I tend to hear a lot from the uh, pro-Palestinian, uh, at least activists in South Africa, is that a lot of it has to do with the settlements. Now, I've heard a lot of uh, certainly American political commentators who are very supportive of Israel 
not be a fan of the settlements and the Israeli government's policy towards them. I know that Alan Dershowitz himself is, is not a fan of it. I, I think Dennis Prager is also spoken out a little bit. I might be wrong, though. I don't want to misquote uh, Dennis Prager. But um, do you think that the, you know, if Israel were to pull out of these settlements that it has made in the West Bank, that could, uh, would, would bring any sort of step forwards to finding a peace deal? Or do you think that's really a bit of a fruitless endeavor on their part? So I definitely think that settlements are an obstacle of peace, but they're not the obstacle to peace. Um, at the end of the day, the decision to build settlements in the West Bank was an extremely controversial one, both inside and outside of Israel, but it's one that the government decided to take. Um, it's You have to remember, though, in terms of the settlements, that Israel hasn't built any new settlements since the 1993 Oslo Accords. It's tried at times to halt building in existing settlements, and just to put it in context, the settlements cover less than 1.7% of the West Bank land. So that's what we're talking about in terms of the settlements. Um, it's a controversial topic. It's not the ideal. I don't encourage new settlements. It's it's really, as you said, a lot of people are not the biggest fan of the settlements. And I agree with you that it is an obstacle to peace. However, I don't think that by pulling out of the settlements or stopping with the settlement issue that it will create peace because... Just as an example, as I said, when we pulled out of settlements in 2005 in Gaza, that didn't bring about peace. And there's been this war long before the settlements were in existence. I mean, there were no settlements in the 1920s when Palestinian leaders began violence um, in that area. So I, I definitely think it is an obstacle to peace. However, I don't think it's by any means the obstacle to peace. And I think that we need to kind of move past the settlement issue and start looking at the greater picture in order to achieve a meaningful peace. And um, land for peace is something that the Israeli government is willing to discuss in negotiations and has been before. For example, in the peace treaties with Egypt and Jordan, Israel has given back land for peace. So it's, it's definitely a part of the discussion. It's not something that's loved by everyone, but we can understand as South Africans that to be proudly South African, you don't have to support everything that the South African government does. And it's exactly the same in Israel. In order to be a Zionist or pro-Israel, you don't have to agree with every single decision that the Israeli government makes. This is one that a lot of people don't agree with. Don't agree with. However, at the same time, I definitely don't think that this is the obstacle to peace. And I think it's kind of used as a scapegoat to point fingers when we're not really looking at the real issue. Yeah, well, I think you're being very forgiving there, actually. You know, I heard one argument uh, from Alan Dershowitz when he said that actually, although he's not a fan of the settlements per se, he says that legally speaking, they are justified as a, an occupation of territory during wartime. Um, so I, I think you're being very nice there. Um, but yeah, no, I totally agree with you. I think we, I would go even further and say that it's because we love our countries that we criticize our government. We wouldn't want to curse our countries with having a bad government. And that certainly is my philosophy. <laughs> um, yeah well look I mean this is you know it's all a, a very difficult situation in recent times in Israel uh, I think the last major conflict that we had was in 2014 um, Netanyahu and Likud have been in power in the Knesset for quite a few years now I'm interested in just to ask your personal opinion how, how do you view Netanyahu and his premiership uh, over the last while are you a fan of him or do you think he uh, leaves some room for improvement so to speak 
Um, it's a difficult question, this, because as somebody who doesn't live in the country, it's very easy for me to um, kind of get wrong what he's doing in the country because I don't live there and I'm not the person that are, is experiencing the effects of his decisions. However, I think that every government has room for improvement and very few countries actually like their government, if you were to ask them. I think that he has got room for improvement and I don't think in terms of popular opinion that he's the most popular person, but I think he's doing what that what he feels is best for the country and in the elections coming up, we will see what the Israeli citizens feel we need to be moving towards and we'll have to see if that is a Likud-led government or if we're going to see a change in the near future. Well, uh, that's an interesting segue to the next question that I wanted to ask. And this is uh, not really to do with Israel Apartheid Week, but it's just a more broad uh, issue of, of uh, dissent among various people, whether or not they support Israel or they support the more Palestine, Palestinian side of this argument. And that is a one-state solution or a two-state solution. Now... From what I've seen, the Labour Party in Israel seems to favour a two-state solution. I'm unaware of what the uh, Likud uh, prefers. And I've heard a number of things from different commentators and a number of arguments uh, either way. So I'm going to start off just by quickly asking you, in your personal view, uh, what sort of solution would you like to see for a peaceful uh, Israel and or Palestine, or neither, perhaps? I don't know. (laughs) So I think, you know, again, this is an extremely difficult question because peace, I think, is something that most rational people can agree on on both sides of this conflict, on both sides of this conflict, is that we want a peaceful solution. And I think a lot of people have a lot of different opinions on what they see as a peaceful solution. Personally, I, um, coming from a South African perspective, was very inspired with Nelson Mandela's approach when apartheid was ending about coexistence. I think um, it was a very special way to view things, to see a South Africa that was not going to be a black South Africa or white South Africa, but was going to be a coexisting South Africa. And I think, I hope with my whole heart that somewhere in the future that that's also possible for Israel. Um, I don't think it's in the near future, but personally I'd like to see one state where we can coexist um, if that's the will of both parties. You know, at the end of the day, my opinion is it's not irrelevant, but it's whatever kind of works best in terms of the best compromise for both parties because we do also believe in the Palestinians' right to self-determination, um, which could lead better into a two-state solution. So we're going to just have to see where the next couple of years, decades take us in terms of what's the best compromise. But ultimately, whether it's one state or two states, whether we're in the same country or different countries, I'd just like to see an atmosphere of coexistence. And I do think that one day that's possible with the right leadership. Yeah, absolutely. You know, that is really the hope. Uh, and I think that's what people on either side of this debate and this conflict hope for is peace with perhaps a few extreme uh, dissenters. I've heard some interesting thoughts on this exact question, the one state versus the two state solution. Now, most sort of mainstream politicians tend to have this kind of airy-fairy diplomatic air about them and saying, oh, we need a two-state solution, we need to return to the, the green lines of the UN. Uh, and then I hear a, a lot harsher terms being said, normally by American conservatives. And I hear actually, unfortunately, a lot of my news about Israel from Americans just because of how close the United States is with the country and the, the link that those two countries have, which is extremely strong. Uh, yeah. And, you know, one of the arguments I've heard, we were talking uh, earlier about how you mentioned that the Palestinian Authority state sponsors terror attacks and 
you know, the cities in Israel uh, still use the Iron Dome to defend them from missiles getting fired from the Gaza Strip. And Ben Shapiro has said, yeah, he thinks that the Oslo Accords are stupid because why give terrorists their own state? Uh, now, that sounds kind of harsh. I, I don't know what, what you personally think about that. But I have to be honest, it's a sort of compelling argument. But at the same time, I, I would 100% agree with you. And an atmosphere of coexistence is definitely one that is needed in the region. And I'd like to see a country which can be pluralistic, so to speak. But, uh, you know, do you think that what you said earlier when you said an, an air of, of coexistence and tolerance, you said Nelson Mandela said South Africa is not going to be a black country. Now, I often find myself at odds, uh, not with this view, but the fact that Israel, by its nature, almost needs, well, it does need to be a Jewish state. And this is one of the whole things about why it exists in the first place. So do you think that's at all at odds with the sort of Nelson Mandela view that you mentioned just now? Mm. You know, it could be. I just, uh, while we're on this topic, I just want to, what yes. you were saying before in terms of the, um, what I think you said it was Ben Shapiro said about not giving terrorists their own land. Yes. I just want to reiterate a very important point that I think a lot of people miss when they think about this conflict is that, the, the conflict is not between Palestinian people and Israeli people. The conflict is we're fighting terrorist organizations. We don't have a problem with the Palestinian people. That's not where the issue lies. And so I think like the Oz, things like the Oslo Accords and all the peace agreements, it's not for the terrorist organizations. We're not trying to give terrorist organizations land. I think at the end of the day, it's for the Palestinian people because we do believe that the Palestinian people have rights, and as I said, a right to self-determination. So all these peace efforts are not for the, the governments, not for the terrorist organizations, but for the people. And I think a lot of people often confuse the conflict and say that it's, it, it involves the Palestinian people, whereas at the end of the day, it's just trying to find the best solution for the people that are not really involved in the decision-making, for the Israeli citizens, the Palestinian citizen citizens, who we just all need the best solution in order to protect all these people that are actually innocent, effectively. Well, I think I absolutely agree with you there, and I love the uh, thing that you said there, that is, we're not at war with the Palestinian people, we're at war with their government. Well, I don't know if you said those words, I don't want to misquote you now, but but that is yeah. exactly true. Is, you know, it really, I, I love to reiterate this in my own political circles, and that I think it's extremely important to draw a very concrete barrier between a country and its government. And I think one of the worst things that we can possibly do is to conflate those two. And that is almost what I see as, as driving up this hatred uh, between nationalities, the xenophobia, and, you know, it's a really horrible thing. So I, I'm very happy to certainly hear that for you. And uh, I hope that that same uh, view is reflected in uh, the people in Israel and, and the whole region. Yeah. And then go, to go back to what your actual question was to me, yes. sorry, I went a little tough there, but... No problem. Um, so... It could, the, the Jewish versus democratic states kind of question, it's something that comes up a lot and it is something that could, in terms of what my vision for coexisting possible, possible one state, it, it could kind of be a conflict of interest type situation. But again, I think, I think there's going to have to be a compromise, whether that means having two states, if that works better, or recognizing that Israel is at the same time as a Jewish state, a democratic state, and therefore can have an air of coexistence, you know, that's going to be something that's going to be left left to see in the future. 
But you have to remember that Israel, at the same time as being a Jewish state, is also a democratic state. Again, like I said in the beginning, 24% of the population is made up of non-Jewish people who live comfortably with the exact same rights as all the Jewish people. So I think the it be, Israel being a Jewish state does not exclusively mean that only Jewish people can live within the state and get kind of like this elitist treatment. Um, but again, it definitely could be something that's, that is a conflict and something that we have to kind of work through. But I think that's a nitty-gritty issue for closer to the time once we have these bigger issues sorted out. Well, I'm, I'm happy to hear that. And I think you make an excellent point there that even though the nature of the modern state of Israel is that it is you know, quintessentially a Jewish state, as long as it remains a democracy and a place where people can have the freedom to practice different religions and and it allows for freedom of speech and civil liberties and so on and so forth, that that may be a reality one day. And I think that does sound like a, a great idea. Um, although, then again, I'm not really an expert for about this. But uh, in any case, I, I think that uh, that's a good way to end. So thank you very much for coming to chat with me. And I just wanted to end off by asking, uh, you are involved with the South African Union of Jewish Students. Uh, if uh, anyone listening to this is a Jewish student or perhaps someone who is just a broad supporter of, of Israel um, and they're on a campus in South Africa, where do you suggest they go to find you guys? So you can join us. We will have stands up at Vitz the whole week next week. Um, and we're, we're not on campuses next week to cause problems. So where there's no problems, we're not going to make one. But we'll be on campus next week. You can follow, like our Facebook page so that if there's any problems you can just message us on the facebook page and we'll ensure that everybody on campuses including even non-jewish students if you feel that you want to come to us feel protected on campus next week and we just want to encourage people to go and find out about the conflict develop your own views and just don't don't listen to a lot of this propaganda that's that's fed by both sides so that's kind of what we're going to be focusing on for the week is just just uncovering the truth Excellent. Well, I wish you all the best luck for this coming week. It may be a tough one for you if last year is anything to go by. Uh, yeah. But anyway, thank you very much for coming and chatting to me. And I hope some people will listen to this and learn something new. Thank you so much for having me. It was great. No problem. All right, then. Thanks very much. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Rational Standard Podcast, How to Build the Roads. This is just one last reminder to give us a like on Facebook. Rational Standard is the name of the page. And if you're on Twitter, follow us at Rational Stand or myself at Nick Babaya, N-I-C-K-B-A-B-A-Y-A. If you'd like to read our articles, check us online at www.rationalstandard.com. And if you're interested, sign up to our mailing list there. Otherwise, I'll see you next time.